0: everyone it's roberta fallon and you're listening to art blog radio thanks for being with us today i am at the beautiful studios soundproof studios recording studios at rec philly we're very excited to have a membership in rec philly which is in the fashion district building if you haven't heard of it Um, it's a cool space for makers and creators and we are recording with Sid Sachs today. Hello, Sid.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: Sid is the Director of Exhibitions at University of the Arts. He's a trained artist, Tyler undergrad, Rutgers grad student, writer, educator, curator. Sid has been an astute observer of the art and artists in Philadelphia for decades now. He's passionate about the early years of the art scene in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And has now produced a kind of magnum opus, multi-venue festival called Invisible City, which you may have heard tell of. It's a wonderful series of exhibits, a symposium and performances and introducing a new audience to the material that was going on in Philadelphia back in these, you know, crucial years. Uh, so we're here to learn more about Invisible City and more about what's coming up next for Sid Sacks. So thank you, Sid, for being here. Okay. Um, let's start out with talking about the idea for Invisible City. How'd you get the name? What? Tell me what the name comes from.
1: Um... Everybody thinks it's from Calvino, and it sort of is, but not really. Italo um, Calvino, the writer. Right, but that's Invisible Cities, plural. Oh. And I would. This is individual. This is individual. This is Invisible City, Philadelphia. And to me, um, I've always been shocked that, um, going having going to school here and having worked here for decades, um, there's wonderful things going on in Philadelphia. And that somehow the information doesn't percolate outside of the city, um, so that it hasn't entered into history in the way that certain other cities like Chicago or LA or you know or Detroit even have. Yeah, um, the
0: Chicago has the Chicago Imagists, right? That's a big, well-known thing. Well, it and- has
1: that, but it also it had the Institute of Design, so Moholy-Nagy was there, and Meese was there, and. You know, so it has this other history that goes back to the Bauhaus. Um, mm. and plus they had the new Art Examiner. So yes. they had a lot of publicity coming out of...
0: Norway. That was a publication, right, that you used to write for? I
1: actually brought it here in 1980 and it was here for 16 years.
0: A print publication, a review publication. Print
1: publication.
0: That uh, was uh, nationally based. As well, as
1: it, had need, it had regional publications. Uh, Focus, but it was national. So it had Chicago, Atlanta, Philadelphia, New York. And it was it had good criticism. I mean no, Jerry Saltz, Jerry Saltz worked for it. No kidding. Now he's Pulitzer Prize winner.
0: Wow. That's good breeding ground for Pulitzers, then I guess. Um so you picked that title and how long have you been working on this show from sort of the general concept to the implementation to getting the money?
1: Well, since we brought up the New Art Examiner in 1983 I did a um, the cover story of the New Art Examiner because the College Art Association was here. So it was a, an article called does, does Philadelphia Have an Images Tradition Too? And I was connecting it to Chicago. So I was talking about Idolo and Ree Morton and, um, and some other people like that. So it goes, maybe it goes back to 83, but about um, maybe not eight or nine years ago, I was in a group with, uh, that Pew set, part, uh, set up with Independent Couriers Incorporated, um, and uh, they asked us to think out of the box, and I actually couldn't do it that. I wanted to do this show. So, <laughs> so um, I think Paula- You thought
0: outside their box.
1: Well, what was interesting is that the people from, there were all these curators coming from Europe and New York and all over the United States. And every time I brought up the topic, they said, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Um, I'm not sure that Paula thought it was a good idea at that point. Um, But then I got a discovery grant. And so I knew that I had enough information and I could find the objects. And then, So I've been working on it at least six years.
0: Wow. Six years. If we don't go back to 1983. Yeah, if you don't go back to 1983. But, you know, going back to 1983 is very interesting. So what did you decide in this new Art Examiner article? Did we have an imagist tradition?
1: Yeah, there was a correlation between Chicago and Philadelphia. But we were also I was also trying to tap into the Chicago um, audience, and also the College Art Association was here, so I was trying to bring them into Philadelphia. So it was kind of a double... Um, purpose.
0: Very clever, yeah. So. It was, a, it was
1: kind of interesting article oh. and I remember I went to New York and I was on a panel at Parsons and people on the panel had read it and I was shocked because I thought it was just like a Chicago newspaper and there were people in New York that, that were congratulating me on the article. So it people read it.
0: Let's hope they came to Philly to look at some of that art then. Who knows, know. right? Um, well, let's talk about the artist. Um, let's explain back up just a little bit and tell everybody who doesn't know um, how many venues you have rounded up and talk about the artists at the different venues or the ones you want to highlight.
1: It's a really large project. There's over 70 artists. I don't know how many objects. Wow. So um, because it was so large, um, um, the Roswell Wolf Gallery, where I normally work, is completely filled. We took over five galleries at the uh, Philadelphia Art Alliance, which the University of the Arts owns. Um, at Gershman Hall, um, with the, the hall, when you enter the uh, the building, has uh, really important ephemera, posters, books. Um, and then on the third floor is where Alex de Corte did uh, Alan Capra's chicken the other day. Um, and yeah, then, we're going to
0: hear about that later. And
1: then um, at uh, PAFA in the furnace building in the back left um, gallery. Um, We have a a beautiful gallery with, about I think, seven artists in it.
0: In the Furnace Building? Yeah. That's the historical building? Right. Huh. In one of those grand academic-looking salon style?
1: Well, because they had the Lee Alter collection, I uh, pitched it that we would have um, installations by women. So we have um, uh, two Ree Morton's and two Cynthia Carlson's, Jody Pinto who taught there, a beautiful installation by Katherine uh, Janssen, um, two major works by uh, Merle Latterman ukiles who was here briefly but significantly, that's when the um, Maintenance Manifesto was written in Philadelphia.
0: It was um, written in Philadelphia? It was written in Philadelphia. I did not know that.
1: That's why it's in the show. And um, there was um, There's an early work by Hannah Wilkie when she was in Philadelphia, and then a later piece from 76 that was done behind the large glass, and then the last thing is a Judith Bernstein drawing. Judith Bernstein wasn't a Philadelphia artist, but there was in 1974, there was a major show, it was called Focus Women in the Arts, and there was a 12-foot Judith Bernstein drawing that was censored, so we have the study for that drawing.
0: So wow, seventy artists. Let let's. Um, so, did you curate all these venues? There, you've got multiple venues there. I curated
1: so. it. Yeah, I did, and okay. I inst- and I figured installed. out the installation. Wow. And I physically installed some of it, but Michael Cherifo who's amazing, and and a crew, uh, was responsible for the installation.
0: Cool. And all of these shows are currently available for people to see, right? It's up but till April 4th. Till April 4th. Okay, go see this stuff. This is really important. Um, Philadelphia Capsule History from the Era, right? And it is... It's
1: from 56 to 76.
0: Okay, 56. It's
1: mostly 76. late 60s to the, to 76. Mm-hmm. But there are a few works from 1950. And the, And the catalog, which will be coming out, which is 300 pages, um, Explains some of the works that um, from the 1950s that we might not have actually the objects and some of the some of the objects don't exist um, sure. like there was a maquette by Robert Smithson for the, his first earthwork which was planned for Philadelphia so the maquette doesn't exist but it's photographed in the book
0: huh. interesting Wow so when the catalog is forthcoming and it's how, on
1: press right now um, it just has to be printed and bound and shipped back to us i don't know when it'll be here i thought it would have been here yeah. way before this time but it's it's a major undertaking we've never done a catalog that big
0: that's super and where can people at the get Rose, at the rosenwald
1: wolf gallery okay. or contact the university of the arts or the art alliance
0: mm-hmm. okay let so copies around town um Let's focus on the Rosenwald-Wolf show, which is the one that I saw. I haven't seen the others yet. I'm looking forward to that. Okay. Um, You have what I thought was a particularly spare installation. Given that it's 70 artists, I was expecting, I mean, not all in that one gallery, obviously, but I was expecting it to be, not salon style, but hung more congested with more artists in it. But how many are in that show? Um, Rosenwald
1: Wolf and um, it's Italo Scanga, yeah. Frank there, Bramblett. There's Italo Scanga, Frank Bramblett, Carl fernbeck Florsheim, William Schwedler, Hans Haka, Haka. Uh, Bill Richardson, Rafi Ferrar, um, Phil Simpkin. Um, there is uh, Bill Beckley, Chuck Fallon, uh, Bill Walton. And um, Joan Watson.
0: Right. So that's 12. an installation. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So let's talk and, about and that. And some
1: of the artists have multiple pieces. So mm-hmm. it's not just like Idlo has three and Rafi has three. and. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, it's an eclectic show. Oh,
1: and William Anastasi. I forgot that.
0: Is that one of the subway?
1: That's the brick piece on the floor.
0: The Brick Piece on the Floor, okay. There's a Brick Piece on the Floor by William Anastasi. All right. Um, how did you select those pieces to be there as opposed to what's in the Art Alliance? Is there, or at halfway you have all the women artists. Is that right? Right,
1: um, and there are women in, at the Art Alliance mm-hmm. too. Um, it actually, the show started out, it was going to be five sculptors. Um, and that and that was in in fact uh, one of the one of my advisors was Robert Pincus Witten and he said you should just do those five sculptures. Um, there Who were is all,
0: Robert Pincus Witten?
1: Robert Pincus Witten is the uh, was a, a really important artist historian and critic who um, coined like post minimalist works and things like that. And so these these sculptures were from that period. Um, But Kate Crasden did the Ree Morton show and it kind of sucked up a lot of material and it was really hard to get material by Ree Morton.
0: This is the show that was at ICA? That was at the ICA that's traveling. A year ago? Yeah.
1: So so uh, I tend to be overly ambitious and this may have been even more ambitious than normal. So this became more of a of a cultural history more than just sculptural history. So it incorporates, it even has music in the catalog, um, Philadelphia music, which is really important.
0: How did you incorporate the music into the catalog? Well,
1: John Swed, who, uh, who I met at, at the University of Pennsylvania um, on a panel, um, he's written about Sun Ra and John Coltrane and Billie Holiday, all, all three of whom uh, had connections to uh, Philadelphia. And he's also done, he's working on, um, well he's done, other books. He's, he's kind of a really amazing polymath um, who was at, at many Ivy League schools and lives in Philadelphia. So he wrote the essay on music.
0: Got it. So you don't have physical music in the catalog, like a CD or a thumb drive or anything, but you. We have-
1: actually have an, a real to reel tape of Terry Riley's first online concert, or at least part of it, that was in um, Bill Copley's. Um, Edition SMS um, and Bill Copley used to make these additions that would go through the mail, uh, like multiples and. Um, mail art. Well, it wasn't really mail art. It was like editions, so you would subscribe to these editions, and they would get shipped in the mail. So there were printed objects like they, uh Bill Schwedler had a, an offset print that you could cut apart. I don't know if it was die cut or if you had to take scissors, but you could build a little construction out of it. And so that was one of them. And then um, this one reel-to-reel tape of the Terry Riley concert, um, that's a long story in itself, but um, Diderot had his first one-person show in the United States at at the the Philadelphia College of Art, which is now UArts. And he wanted uh, some of his friends to come down and show or perform. so he had um, Nam June Pike and Charlotte Mormon and Lamont Young and Terry Riley. So when Terry Riley came, um, in back of Hamilton Hall, there's a, a glass enclosure, but it used to be open to the sky. It used to have a pond in the 1960s. so people slept outdoors in. Uh, hammocks and sleeping bags and listen to Terry Riley perform all night. Um, and all so night. part of that tape, yeah, part of that recording um, is on CDs, but it's also on this real, to real tape that's part of this edition by Bill Copley.
0: And where can one hear this?
1: Uh, you can, there is a CD that's online that you can maybe buy. Um, you can't hear the real to real tape. They're kind of rare. They were only uh, the later editions of the of the SMS uh, were actually cassette recordings, but we have an earlier one in the, in the library.
0: Wow. So cultural history, let's go back into that a little bit more, you mentioned that. What was the culture like in Philadelphia when, you know, from this era? Um, was it a lot of hippy-dippy stuff going on and Well, that was rebellion? everywhere, but
1: there were like, uh, surprisingly, Rittenhouse Square are, is one of the places where hippies hung out, and Sampson Street wasn't South Street necessarily. South Street was a little bit later. Really? Yeah. In fact, um, I had I was doing a PowerPoint at the Art Alliance, and I had a a record cover for the Orlons who did South Street, right? but it had other other songs, and one of the songs was between 18th and 19th on Chestnut Street, which is that's kind a of a song. That's a song. It's kind of a terrible song. But if you go online and listen to it, it talks about all the hippies meeting on on Chestnut Street between Eighteenth and Nineteenth, which was kind of right around the corner, but between Sampson and Rittenhouse Square. So it it was kind of a, a nexus between different cultures. Um, I think um, the Twelfth Street's known as the Gaborhood now. I think it was Rittenhouse Square more at a certain time too. Um, so it's the culture changes from time to time in Philadelphia as it does any other city. Um, so uh, there was there were coffee houses like the Gilded Cage, and the and then there were rock clubs like the Trauma, and then the Electric Factory was on Arch Street, but those were um, they started on Art they started on uh, Sampson Street and worked their way up to Arch. Mm.
0: And where did the artists hang out?
1: The like, artists were. Where
0: did you hang out?
1: Well, I was during this time period. I was at Tyler, so I was living up in on Morgan's North Broad Park. Street. Yeah. Actually, I wasn't literally in Elkins Park, but almost there. I was still in Philadelphia because I couldn't find an apartment in Elkins Park. Elkins Park was pretty ritzy back then Mm. in the 60s. Mm. Um, But the students, Tyler students, moved down Broad Street a little bit. So they were on Old York Road and on Broad Street.
0: And did you go to these 18th and 19th Street hangouts or where did the artists go? I remember
1: seeing Dave Van Ronk at the Gilded Cage. Um, I have no idea why I was there, but, you know, like, in the 60s, like, I saw Nina Simone at the Academy of Music, I saw Judy Collins there, I mean, it was, and and then there was the, and the, there was the main point in Bryn Mawr, and I saw, um, uh, blues, blues bands there, and things like that, so, there, they were, things were spread out, there was a coffee house, I can't remember the name of it, in Germ- Germantown, um, and there was the bandbox, which had great movies in, in Germantown in the 1960s. Hmm. Um, it was it was before the Ritz. So um, I remember seeing Casavetti's faces in in the, the bandbox in, in uh, Germantown.
0: Hmm. So it sounds like it was more sprawling than.
1: I don't think there was one center. Um,
0: Not that there's one center now. No, but I mean, I don't
1: but think mean Tyler was its own entity. I think Germantown had a little bit of more bohemian culture going on um, and then there was obviously Sampson Street and then South Street. South Street happened by accident. Um, Ed Bacon wanted to have a uh, thoroughfare going through mm-hmm. South Street and so the property values dropped so people could get those those buildings for a song and then there, was, there were protests like Denise Scott Brown and others in the community uh, stopped that from happening. It later became the blue route. It moved over the highway that he wanted be, it went up to Crum Creek. Um, but because people had already moved in to South Street, east of Broad Street, that became like Grange Village, sort of, for Philadelphia. And the, the Theater of the Living Arts was opened up, and, and um, the Snyderman Gallery, and Eyes Gallery, and other places, mm-hmm. you know, Zipperhead, and later on, and things like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Bookstores. And... Yeah, Isaiah Zagar. Goes back that far to South Street, I think. Okay. Um, so let's cut right to the chase and ask about the chicken. <laughs> the chicken for our listeners is the name comes from a 60s era happening by Ellen Caprow. Caprow? was the famous happenings guy in the 60s and it took place in Philadelphia right. so explain about that and where the contemporary chicken
1: so in Gershman Hall this. which had been the, the Jewish Y in uh, it goes back to the 1920s around 1958 a group of women that were involved there um, started the Arts Council and um, Audrey Sable invited Billy Kluver who was an engineer with Bell Labs um, to do an exhibit and Audrey had wanted Billy to do an abstract expressionist show um, and he said no 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 no. you don't want that you want a, you want my friends that's over so um, he put together a major show um, he thought it was the first pop art show in the United States it was actually like the second or third Walter Hobbs did one in California but no one knew about it yet mm-hmm. Uh, and it was before the New Realism show in New York, which gets more credit. So it's the first East Coast pop art show. And it had uh, Rauschenberg, Johns, Jim Dine, um, Lichtenstein, Oldenburg, Bob Watts, George Brecht, Tingley, um, Robert Breer. I'm forgetting somebody, I'm sure. Uh, and then Alan Capro on November seventh, 1962, did The Happening Chicken.
0: And this was all in Philadelphia?
1: It was on yeah, Broad and Pine okay and they did major that was that was like the first major thing but then if you go into to see the show in gershman hall you'll see uh posters many of which sam mayton uh designed or later jim mcwilliams who was at the university of the arts designed and there's everything from nurse cunningham to the modern jazz quartet Ornette coleman um, paul taylor um, if they didn't have it at gershman hall they were at van pelt library they were producing things throughout the city this is before the ICA was established. Mm-hmm. So they were doing major things. They did a multiple show, they did a banner show, they did a sculpture show.
0: They, they being a, the Arts Council? The Arts
1: Council, they did a, a West Coast show, they did a Seattle show. Helen Drutt was involved with that. Um, the West Coast show had Arneson and Via Selmond, um, right out of grad school, and William T. Wiley and many other people like um, the. Harris that you wouldn't know now, but he was in um, major sculpture shows uh, that were traveling during the time period.
0: Were they self-funding um, the Arts Council, or where were they getting their money from? It sounds like it was a lot of, a lot of work.
1: I think the women volunteered. Um, they were professional women. They had gone to college. They were married to doctors and entrepreneurs. Like Audrey Sable's husband ran NFL films with her son and so they made a lot of money. They were the first people to do like football teams on TV. Um, and uh, Joan Cron's husband was a surgeon and um, Helen Drutt did not have, off and on did not have a husband, she was self-made. Um, Janet Carden, her husband had a paper company. Um, these were very intelligent women who were collectors and involved with the arts like Audrey Sable commissioned Wayne Tebow to do a portrait of her daughter, for example. And then they had a big Ed Ruscha in their house. and Things like, these were early collectors of, the, of these works. Um, and A.C. Walger, who lived on top of the Drake, she was involved with the Y Arts Council. And people they had a swimming pool, and people like Andy Warhol will go up there. And there's, there's actually a film that was filmed, a Warhol film that was filmed in that swimming pool. So there were a lot of things going on. Um, the Avenue of the Arts, the the University of the Arts was the museum school at that point. So the museum itself did not have much contemporary art going on. So on Broad Street, you had plays before they went to Broadway. Uh, you had many theaters there. You had jazz clubs in the, in the vicinity, like the Showboat was on uh, Lombard Street, but there are other jazz clubs there. You had the museum school and they were bringing, like when Diderot was at the University of the Arts. They also had a Henry Moore show. They did a de Kooning show in the 50s. Um, lots of things were going on. And in in between 52 and 54, there was a man named Raymond Hendler. And um, he was an abstract expressionist who went to Paris after the Second World War on the GI Bill. And he, when he came back to Philadelphia, he was a Philadelphia native. He um, set up a gallery in his living room. And he invited his friends, and they included Sam Francis, who was shown for the first time in the United States, Jean-Paul Riopelle, William de Kooning, um, Jackson Pollock, Philip Guston, Milton Resnick, people like that, along with Doris Stoffel and Bob Kaiser, uh, Philadelphia artists. So, um, and then about two blocks away there was the Dubin Gallery and that's where Ken Nolan had his first show outside of Washington DC. This is before you know, before the Macular Gallery started and, and before John Allman came on board at Janet um, Fleischer. Wow. So there were things going on. And then even the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, they had these annual shows and they showed all the abstract expressionists, they just didn't necessarily purchase them. So there was more going on at the Pennsylvania Academy um, than the later representational work that was that it's noted for.
0: Mm-hmm. So. Fascinating, but we fell down the rabbit hole. Sorry. So getting back to the chicken. <laughs> it happens
1: when you talk to me. <laughs> it's okay.
0: I love that. So
1: Chicken was on November 7th, 1962, and Alan Capro did a performance. Um, it, it has a score that the, that's at the Getty, and that it'll be published in the book. Um, but if you redo a happening by Alan Capro, you have to adjust it. You have to change it. You have to reinvent it. So Alex Decorte completely reinvented it. And the first uh, the first chicken was mo- more or less monochromatic um, because Capra didn't have a lot of money for props. So it was wood and tar paper and it, uh, plastic drop sheets and a record player and things like that. Um, Alex, so in an
0: installation, It was right? in an
1: installation. There was a big um, abstracted chicken made out of wood and tar paper. Um, Capra was using a lot of tar, roofing tar, and tar paper, as was George Siegel, his friend. And George Siegel had a chicken farm, um, so um, which became his studio, and the plaster figures in back of the black, in front of the black tar paper, were really striking. Um, I remember going there when I was in grad school. So um, anyway, because I was at Rutgers, it was nearby.
0: OK, you went to the studio of George Siegel. Yeah. Okay. Rena and, his daughter, Rena and
1: his daughter was in grad school the second year I was there, but I went there the first year because Gary Keene, who I, who I was a TA for, was good friends with George from the 60s. He's the man in the um, gas station with the Coke bottle. He's in a lot of bar scenes. George would use um, people he knew as models. Um, Wrapped them in plaster, right? Wrapped them in plaster, yeah. Um, So, in fact, when I was in grad school, I know all of the the people that are in the sculptures. And the person I shared a studio with um, is on a scaffolding with a big beam um, in one of the sculptures. I don't know what it's called, but...
0: Cool. So how did uh, Alex change this monochromatic... You know, original well, one he, to put he, his imprint on it because he's not monochromatic. He's very not monochromatic. High key color. Actually, this
1: was this was an oddly monochromatic. It was mostly yellow, although it was a little bit of red and a little bit of blue, but mostly yellow. About I would say ninety five percent of it was yellow. It was kind of interesting.
0: And what was it?
1: Um, he re envisioned chicken. Um, in the original chicken, it was it was kind of, when you read it, it was kind of disgusting. I mean, they they would pluck chick live chickens. They would pluck them. They would swing them around their heads. They were vacuuming chickens. They crushed chickens. They threw raw eggs. Oh, so They were stop. they were <laughs> cooking chickens and giving out chicken, um, and so um, there were no chickens harmed in this happening. Um, instead of chickens, Alex. Kind of converted chickens to moons, um, so there were a lot of moon language. Oh, and there, there were also hawkers, like selling goods in the original one. But they, but Capro didn't have the script. He didn't say what the people said, so we got um, Rosalind Drexler to write some things. Some of which were used in the in the in Alex's piece, but a lot of it was written by the the. Um, performers, I think, or Alex, I'm not sure who, I'm, I'm speaking out of turn. Um, so Rosalind
0: Drexler, you, let's stop at that for a okay. second, because she is a pop artist from the 60s who was totally overlooked, and you revivified her career and brought her to light a I'm, number of years ago. I was
1: part of the process. I mean, there was uh, she had had a show at the Gray Art Gallery, she had a show at Mitchell Algis Algus Gallery, and then I showed the work. And I show the work because I wasn't sure that I would get funded for the pop show that I later did. So it was like in case I didn't do that, at least I would have Rosalind down as a one-person show. And we're friends. I just I actually went to her to get the score to give to Alex. I went to her house.
0: Wow! And she must be ninety years old by now. Almost, I think. How sweet! I met her. And she's still writing. She's
1: still writing. She's still painting.
0: Wow! That's great. Super. So she wrote what for Alex's chicken? She cheese? wrote dialogue. But like I Hawkers? came. I came to Rosalind
1: because she had been in actual actual happenings um, by Robert Whitman and other people. She was in Hansa Gallery where some of the happenings took place, um, and I thought she would. I came to her first to see if she would have an idea of what the happenings are like because there's some scores and there are a few films that are silent. But we don't. You don't. Some of them, like the Oldenburg films, are really um, made aesthetic. They're not the real film footage. You can tell they're edited. Mm. And there are films of Bob Whitman's films and Falstrom's film uh, happenings, um, but they're rare, and you really don't get a f- sense of what Capros would be like. Mm. So all you have is film stills, oh. or not even film stills. You just have black and white. Pictures, so and uh, rudimentary scores. So you have to invent them. And I asked people like uh, Helen Drudd and Penny Bach, who had been to the and John Allman, who had been to the original Chicken, what it was like. And they just they they would say things, oh, it was amazing, or it made me see the world differently. But I didn't know if it was funny or scary or what the mood was like. I couldn't get a handle on it. So I didn't have anything to give to Alex. So he sort of took it and went with it in an alex way in fact i didn't think that he would get that involved i just asked him as a favor as an ex-student and he spent a whole year on it and there were like 18 people working on the project it was amazing and then a a busload from new york came down with curators and his gallery and uh, there were 500 people at the opening uh, at the happening wow yeah it was people on the floor and people up in the. Stand.
0: And what was the role of the audience in all of this? I, I'm really confused by, is it participatory or just stand around the edges and watch what's going on? It wasn't really
1: participatory. Uh, I stood on the floor because I had, in one of the practices, I was upstairs. It was a little bit hard to see over the balcony because he had he had surrounded the balcony with yellow neon and the kind of glare of the neon made it kind of obliterated what was going on but also some of it was almost underneath the balcony.
0: And this is in the swimming
1: pool, right? No, 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 oh, no, no. It's on the third floor. Oh. The okay. swimming pool doesn't exist anymore. That's well, going no, no, to be a I light know. box theater. Right. That's going to be a light box theater. Ah. I mean, right now it'll be on the third floor, but when they finish theater, there's going to be a, a, a major a venue for seeing film on Broad Street. Terrific. We now own the light box, or it's part yes, of the University I know. of the Arts.
0: We are, we just broke some news here. I don't know that I've heard this anywhere else. Lightbox is going to have a theater at University of the Arts. That's great.
1: Yeah. I well, we need it. We, we we have. We do.
0: The Ritz is closing venues. The Bourse is closed now.
1: But isn't that going to be a film center? Did I hear that? I don't know. I thought it was going to be like the Philadelphia Film Society or something.
0: Maybe but, I don't know. Okay. Don't know. Anyway, so. Um, Wow. And did you document the chicken? I know that Alan Capro only had black-and-white film Yeah, there were only black-and-white
1: pictures. In fact, the Getty said they had slides, and I was really excited, and Jenny Hirsch went to research it, and it was just, it was slides of the black-and-white pictures that Ed, Sable, that Ed Sable took, <laughs> and they were already in Capro's book. Um, there were a few different pictures, a few different views. Um, a lot of people documented it. There were videos being documented, and there were several photographers taking pictures, and then some of the people in the audience photographed and filmed it, too. Great. So I, there's going to be a really good record of that particular happening.
0: Cool. All right, so we're running out of time here, Sid. Did we not cover anything that you want to cover? What What do you want to say to people about Invisible Cities? Uh,
1: you only have until April 4th, and yeah. it's a great April show. April 4th. And hopefully you'll see all the venues. Um, you don't necessarily have to go to the Gershman. That's sort of icing on the cake. Um, but it's interesting. It's like footnotes for the other objects um each of the venues is really beautiful in its own way um and i'm really proud of the project and the catalog please buy the catalog you'll be glad you did actually
0: 300 pages of catalog um so what's next what are you working on now apart from getting over the adrenaline drop Uh, after this festival is over
1: um in about a month we're going to have a jim dine drawing show of works that have never been shown before and there's going to be a catalog for that um, and I'm still working on the next year's schedule. I'm a little bit behind where I usually am at this point um, because we were working right up to the opening, <laughs> installing and and changing the installation because objects couldn't come. Um, so I'm, I am a little bit behind. Uh, we're going to try and go, do a Gutai show because uh, uh, Yuka Yokoyama um, and the the, is working on a project at the Japanese house.
0: Yuka uh, is the co-director of marginal utility, right? Right.
1: And they, Pew gave the Japanese house in Fairmont Park a project because that house is from like 1953. It was actually, it looks like an old Japanese home, but it was actually in the Museum of Modern Art, in their sculpture garden in a architectural show, and it was given to the city of Philadelphia. And so they're doing a whole project with that history. The architect that did that was friends with George Nakashima, who was also an architect, not just a furniture maker. Um, so they're doing a history of the people that involved, the architects involved with that. And Gutai was a, was a, a Japanese performative and object making group in Japan about the same time, the same era as that house. So I'm trying to assemble a Gutai show for that.
0: This sounds marvelous and also very ambitious and watch for it coming soon. Thank you, Sid Sacks. Thank you. And thank you folks for listening to Art Blog Radio. Come back for the next podcast. We're always here. Find them online at the Art Blog. Bye.
1: Bye.